Hello, welcome to Ruby Roads. On your panel this week, we have my infamous co-host Valentino Stoll. Hey there. And this week we're talking to Brooke Coleman. Brooke Coleman, could you please introduce yourself and tell us why you're famous? <laughs> hey everyone. Well, I don't, I don't know if I'm famous, but I do write a lot about Ruby and just the craft and the joy of the craft. So I'm happy, happy to be here, happy to hang out with you guys. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Thanks very much for coming. You have written an amazing article on Ruby Struts. And let me tell you, this is quite a long, meaty article, especially for a part of Ruby that I'll be frank, a lot of developers, especially on the rail side, don't really know or use structs at all. Yeah, that's correct. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to write it is to have a chance to try to really explain where that about that primitive, right? And how to leverage it and use it, right? I'm always always a bit bummed myself when I come across fellow engineers, right? And they're trying to do something complex, you know, with like a class or some other complex object. And really all they have is something that's just a, a bag of data. So being able to put that into a struct and have some nice object API to get those attributes is, is really elegant and it makes for some really nice Ruby code when you use it that way. How did you come to know and love the Ruby struct? <laughs> oh boy, uh, that's an interesting question. I don't even know if I can think back that far. Uh, it's been uh, over a decade uh, since I've been doing Ruby development and I must have stumbled across it either in you know pairings with other more senior engineers when I was a younger, very green uh, Rubyist, or just reading, right? Like, you know, Dave Thomas's Pickaxe book or uh, some of the other literature that's out there on structs and just primitives in general. And it is a bit of an odd class, right? In terms of primitives, right? It has yep. a different type of construction versus, you know, like arrays or hashes or strings. It's, a, it's kind of a strange primitive in that regard. But once you kind of get over that kind of initial, hey, this is a little bit of a stranger object, uh, primitive in Ruby. It's it's actually quite nice uh, to use, right? Um, yeah. In terms of just constructing it really quickly, you're able to use it and not have some of the complicated overhead that you might have with a more complex object like a like a class or or, or something else entirely. God, I hate classes. I really, really can't stand <laughs> them. The my love of the struct came after I kind of dropped out of the uh, doing Rails and started doing a load of Sinatra stuff. Uh, went on a little Ruby journey. And I was essentially using Ruby hashes for everything. So the most complex object type I had was a hash. And you can build like a nationwide e-commerce system with no relational database and just kind of loading stuff in from JSON, just kind of no SQLing yourself up. It's a really great learning experience. 
But the trouble with hashes in Ruby is you have to go to that place on the keyboard that no one wants to go. I'm talking about the northeastern part. I'm talking about the northeastern part of a keyboard where the square brackets and the curly black brackets live. You know that part. And yep. if you want to look stuff up in a Ruby hash, you've got to you've got to go to that part of the keyboard. And I don't want to go to that part of the keyboard. I look at these people doing JavaScript and I just want to go my thing dot value, right? That's what I want yep. to do. No, so my thing dot attribute for value. That's what I want to do. That's why I got on board with Ruby struct. That's why I kind of got into open struct. I want to be able to do that. I don't want to have to type square brackets, but I have a feeling there's there's more to it than that. <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. That's actually, um, that's why I like it too, right? Is struct uh, by default, right? Uh, once you have those attributes defined, right? It gives you that nice, Object API, which is just good OO, right? Uh, being able yep. to have an object and you send a message to it. Just happens to be an attribute, but that's a nice way to talk to your objects within Ruby. So yes, uh, although you can actually with a struct still use the brackets if if you want to, right? Oh um, no, there is that. Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> so you can, which is kind of nice, right? Like in in terms of like having a little bit more versatility, being able to have it sort of behave like a hash-like object is, is kind of cool in some regards too. But back to your original point though, being able to just send a clean message to it, right? It just happens to be a method on that object and get back uh, the answer that you want or the attribute that you want is uh, is a really nice way to use a struct, yeah. How how does structs relate to the kind of PoRo stuff? Because you, it used to, a few years ago, there was a lot of PoRo, the old plain old Ruby objects. A struct isn't a PoRo, is it? It's, it's slightly different. True. Yes, because structs, right, are basically a way. It's just a, a primitive contract, uh, construct, right, uh, to give you an object around a collection of attributes, just raw data, right. It's it's a nice way to basically break away from primitive obsession that you'd have with a hash. So you know yep. your point earlier about hashes, right. Like, sure, you know, when you're learning Ruby, you might be like, oh, hashes are pretty cool. I can do a whole lot of things with them. And you can also kind of take that too far uh, where you've got hashes all over the place. And, uh, you know, <laughs> sure, sure. But, you know, you haven't given a name to it yet, right? Like there's something kind of going on. Like, um, I, I guess I'll kind of uh, reference uh, Sandy Metz, you know, when she, when she says like, hey, there's there's maybe like an object trying to be born here. It just It just doesn't have a name yet, right? Mm. And so when you have that kind of proliferation of primitive accession with uh, a complex hash or just a hash with a lot of keys and values in it, right? But it has a common set of keys, value, and structure there. Um, you want to, might want to give it a name. And so that, that struct allows you to have that way to give that object a name so that you can define it once and then pass it around and use it within multiple objects versus having to know that like, oh, I'm just injecting some, some kind of hash here and uh, just happens to work. But, but it's nice to be able to have that 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 struct to actually give it uh, that kind of that name. The the other thing that's nice about this too is it provides like if that if that's if in a hash right like if you were to query it for a key or value that might not be there right it would come back uh, the null or uh, if you're doing a fetch right it throw an exception of some sort. But with a struct you can again you have a method on there right so it's actually going to err in a different way if if that's not there, uh, which which is which is uh, kind of nice as well. If I guess if that makes sense. It does make sense. I um, so it's not as easy to get started with a struct as a hash. You have to kind of change change gears mentally. Uh, it's a lot more restrictive than the hash, but that can have benefits. Of course, you can't just add stuff 
right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Actually, the fact that you can't add additional attributes, right? Yeah, even after the fact, even once you've already defined your struct, that's the interesting uh, thing about those is you just can't modify a, a struct and add additional attributes to it, which is nice. That, that is very nice. I was going to say something else there, but I think, yeah, just the fact that you just can't add uh, more to it is it, really nice. And you'll get a proper error for that when you try to do that, which is which is cool. Unless it's an open struct. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 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 fair, fair. So open structs are interesting, right? Um, I, I know you you kind of mentioned them earlier, and I I, I sort of cringe just a little bit. Uh, the, the reason for <laughs> the reason for so let me explain is open structs are sure they're they're great, right? Like you can just uh, create one, right? Throw a whole bunch of stuff into it, uh, yep. dynamically expand uh, it, and so forth. But you know, if you if you kind of go back to my article at the at the bottom of it, right? There's like a section on benchmarking. And I, and I show the performance of those, right? Like open structs are actually really, really poor in terms of performance. And I, so in my code base, right, I, I, I try to get them out, uh, never use them if at all possible. In fact, in our, in Rubicop, you can actually define a cop to detect that as a performance uh, violation, right? And throw mm. uh, linter errors for that. So I make sure that's ratcheted up pretty high uh, within my code bases and teams that I work on so that that doesn't uh, slip in. Because it's it's very easy to grab for one of those, right? Um, just you know, make it a bag of anything, but it does have performance and uh, memory uh, disadvantages. Uh, so being able to uh, just use a, a proper you know class or struct or some other object, right, is way better than actually dealing with uh, with open structs. In fact, actually, I I might be wrong on this, but I I seem to recall like an issue or or some kind of discussion within Ruby Core. Uh, that's talking about either getting rid of those or or, or doing away with open structs uh, entirely. I, I might be wrong on this, so you know, don't 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 quote me completely. But I seem to recall seeing something in there where even even the team is uh, worried about uh, being able to have open structs in the in Ruby core, c- just because it leads to kind of a bad practice. Man, that's my favorite kind of struct. I like. <laughs> I, I, I listen. I don't. I don't come. To Ruby for fast code. I come to Ruby for unstoppable code. <laughs> the uh, one of the really nice things I like about what OpenStruct is, I was just doing just now. So I'm in the JavaScript console in my browser, trying some stuff out, throwing some new things into an object. You can do that with OpenStruct. So you can kind of really freewheel if you're on a Pride console and kind of just organically build up your object, flavor interfaces. But after you do that, then you just, just work out the the um what do you call the things what do you call bits of a struct what are they called the kind of x and the y's what how do you name those structs attributes struct oh parameters yeah, just attributes yeah, yeah. you can yeah. kind of once you work out your attributes but the open structs really nice for work kind of uh, just playing around and working stuff out so I, <laughs> I i think they should keep it in i'm a big fan of the open struct i want i want freedom in my structs <laughs> okay okay well, so that's a that's a fair point, right? I always forget about sort of the playful aspect of, of Ruby, right? Like you're saying, right? You just want to jump in. You want to just play with something, right? You want to see how it feels. You want to see how that object is starting to form in your head. Right. Um, and, and you make a very good point, right? Like that is actually not a bad idea for just trying to get an idea of what it is that you want to design. It's almost like a like a code spike in a way, right? My only caution is uh, that's great. Play with that to, to kind of design and implement or sort of get your architecture in place. But then, you know, immediately throw that out and actually reach for a proper proper object, like a, you know, a hash or a, a struct or a class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, one thing you pointed out in your article that I really stuck to was uh, the struct is kind of like a data encapsulation. It's a little container to pass around for messaging, right? It really lets you 
get to that the, the core OO that Ruby's kind of meant for, right? Where you can then wrap and pass around the things specifically that you really want your classes and stuff to consume and have a defined thing, right? And filter out all of the stuff from a hash <laughs> or something like that, which I we could get to that next because I, I thought that was pretty clever, uh, your transformations of kind of basically you have a a struct that can take a hash as a parameter at, with a method on it, like for you used as an example and say, hey, using this hash, just make a, you know, the proper data that we want out of this. And I thought that was pretty clever. But yeah, just tying back, like, it's definitely like uh, a lot of people forget about OO design, right? Like, because Rails is kind of like Wild Wild West, you have like, you you have your overall like fundamentals your opinionated things that you should do where to put stuff yeah. right but other than that i mean and ruby is the same way there's like a million ways to do the same thing you, it's easy to forget oh like we want things to be cohesive and make sense uh in an object oriented way right uh, yeah and struct is great for that yeah so uh thanks actually i'm, I'm glad you enjoyed that too the one thing I want to emphasize there is uh, in that example, right, especially for, for those listening and maybe haven't read the article, you know, the idea is, is that um, you could have a class method on the struct, right? And you could have, like like you were saying, uh, Valentino, um, you could have a for or a with or whatever, something that's coming in, some other object type, basically, right? And you want the struct to consume that so it can turn itself into instance of itself, the struct in this case, right? of that raw data that's coming in. So that is very nice and it takes very little code, right? It's, it's kind of fun. We're using some of the more modern aspects of Ruby because the transform keys, which was recently added to you know Ruby core on like uh, a hash, like a raw hash coming in, you can easily transform those using like a pattern and uh, convert them, the keys into the attributes that need to be equal for the struct, right? And then you can construct a new uh, struct off of that. The, the one thing I want to say there, though, is that is really nice. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, it, it is a, a cool way to have your struct have just a little bit of intelligence to convert from one type to another. Where you can take this too far, though, and, and with all things, right? Like even in the article, right, when I'm showing some patterns, some examples, some cool ways to kind of do things, you want to have limits on it uh, because... Uh, you, you can um, you can put too many converters and transformers on your poor struct to deal with these various other types of objects coming in to turn them into the struct that you want. And at that point, you probably should branch out, right? Like basically have some kind of like other object, like maybe it's an adapter or something that takes like the incoming object and then is able to uh, adapt it or decorate it or transform it into the struct that you, the struct that you want to uh, pop out. So that it isn't necessarily the struct's responsibility. Uh, again, trying to get into like what you're touching upon, good OO design, right? Like sometimes that's kind of nice um, if it's small and the footprint isn't massive. Uh, but if it starts to get kind of like you know out of out of hand, you might want to refactor that and actually have a third object in there that is kind of the intermediary, right? That can transform what's coming in and spit out the struct that you want on the outside. If if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, part of me thinks of inheritance as that same, a similar problem, right? Where you're just like <laughs> pulling in a ton of stuff that you're not maybe even going to use in most cases, which I saw you using refinements in here. Is that something that you use a lot? Yeah. So, um, yeah, great, great question. <laughs> so refinements, <laughs> I, you know, when they came onto the scene, I'm trying to remember when that was, I think it was, I want to say like two, two Ruby two five somewhere in there. I, I might be wrong actually. Uh, my my memory's uh, just a little far, a uh, little off on that. But 
I remember that coming onto the scene, I was like, whoa, this is, this is really cool, right? Like refinements gives me a way in which to sort of add in some of the things I want into the Ruby core libraries that I, that I just don't get, right? But I can do it in a way that's elegant, that doesn't monkey patch and doesn't surprise downstream engineers, right? Because with refinements, um, when you define those and use those within your code, they're lexically scoped. So when you're using the refinement, it's only for that portion of code that it's in. So it only affects that code. But any other objects that are like using your object that's been refined or anything of that nature, it doesn't affect them at all. It's only for that uh, small unit of code. So I'm a big fan of refinements. Um, in fact, I'm such a fan that I actually have a gem called refinements uh, that you can install and then refine and have the ability to refine some of the Ruby core classes that gives you some of the elegance that personally I feel that's missing from Ruby. And so this is a way to kind of give it a little bit of a boost of extra power, right, uh, in your Ruby code. One, one of my favorite parts of refinement, sorry, you kind of got me started on refinement, so I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'll pause yeah. for just a moment. Go for but it. <laughs> one, of, one of the things about the refinements gem that I have is path names. Path names is one of my favorite primitives in Ruby, besides structs. <laughs> I know we're, we're kind of getting into all kinds of cool primitive stuff here, but, but path names, I've refined them so that they always return an instance of themselves. So it makes it so that in the refinement oh, cool. of path names, you can actually keep chaining it. So like, you know, if you re need to rename something and then you want to copy it or you want to move it or you want to delete it, like it'll keep giving you back an instance of that path name. So you can kind of chain those together in a kind of an elegant way, which gives you a little bit more of a uh, sort of like a functional pipelining flow uh, to your Ruby code. So anyway, lots of uh, <laughs> lots of fun uh, in, in that uh, area. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, it just reminded me when I first saw refinements and then I, I got into a lot of JavaScript shortly thereafter with imports. That's kind of one thing I, I miss in Ruby is like that ability to just take in or require the things that are very specific to an external dependency, right? Which isn't really possible. <laughs> I mean, you you get some of that with refinements, but you, there, you still bring in everything else with that refinement, right? Well, yes. So if that refinement is actually, so like, let's say that you refine like a path name, like I was giving an example of, right? Yeah. If you have a lot of refinements on there, like basically you're finding a, a bunch of methods on there, or you're adding some new methods altogether, right? When you define that, that's actually gonna, all those are gonna come into that object. Uh, so you're absolutely right in that case. What you could do though, is you could make smaller refinements, right? But then that means if you do that, it would be like refining almost like per, per method, so to speak, if that makes right. sense. But now uh, when you want to use those, right? That means that at the top of your class, you'd be several lines of using, 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 using. <laughs> um, but yeah. it would give you a way to pick and choose, right? Instead of all the cart, you could kind of uh, pull in. But when I was designing it, I made the choice to basically say, hey, look, if you bring in the refinement for path name, it's going to bring in everything that I'm refining, right? Thinking that that's a, a better engineer experience so that you don't have to kind of figure out what you want to pick and choose. Uh, you just kind of get it all a cart. But you make a good point, right? Like there's not a, the, it would be interesting as a feature. I don't know how Ruby core would do this, but to have something that gave you a way to say you want to refine path names, but you want to only require maybe certain methods, right? So the footprint's a little smaller on the object that you're refining, if, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I think Python has something similar too, right? With like using from kind of syntax, I think, where you yeah. can import pieces of a library. Yeah, I, was, yeah, I don't uh, know. 
tangent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's great. I, uh, I so I haven't I haven't done Python, but I was thinking when you were saying that Elm does this. Uh, I, I love Elm on the front end, and uh, Elm allows you to uh, include a module and then define what methods that you're bringing in. So you're you're absolutely right. Like that would be a cool way uh, to bring in some of those uh, capabilities in a filtered way. Yeah. Right. Well, back to structs. <laughs> <laughs> so, what real advantages do you get from like? using a struct versus just a class and kind of at what point do you decide in your head maybe this should be a class yeah yeah so i like to stay with the uh, true intent of what a struct is meant to be right again just a data object right all i want to do is just have a simple object that defines my data and gives me a nice uh, object api so i can you know just send the method that i want and, and get back the value and none of those square um, brackets no square brackets at all <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yes, and get rid of the square brackets. None of the, none of that nonsense. But what's that's kind of basically my stopping point is um, I just want to give that object a name, right? That data. I just want to give it a nice name, a nice type that I can do something interesting with. If it gets a little bit more than that, right? So, like, let's say, let's say you got your struct, and, and by all means, right, in your struct, you can open it up further, right, and define custom methods on it for for sure. You can also add uh, class methods like we were talking about earlier with for and with and so forth to do transformations. If that starts to get really big, right? Like those custom methods are doing a lot of like complex business logic or some other kind of uh, mechanism in there that isn't really tied. It's making the data object a little bit more almost like a class at that point, right? It like has some behavior in there that it, it needs to do. That's, that's kind of the line and it, you kind of have to feel it out, right? Like as you're building this out, right? Like some things uh, can make sense. Like, Maybe, so let me give you a concrete example. So sometimes it's kind of nice to treat the struct a little bit like a presenter pattern, if, if that makes sense, right? Where you might have some raw data coming in, you've got the attributes on it, but then maybe you want to add a few elegant methods just to give it a little bit of presentation logic. Like, let's say that your raw data coming in is like first name and last name. And maybe it'd be nice to have a little method on there that says full name, but it just concats those two together, right? That's kind of blurring the line a little bit, right? Because you're getting in, you're kind of mixing patterns there, a data object with like a presenter pattern. But in some cases, that just a little bit of extra syntactic sugar, right? From, from, from a method perspective to kind of give you what you want isn't necessarily bad, but you need to, you need to be just careful. Like you can take it too far, right? You can have too many methods that are doing all kinds of presentation logic. And when you get to that point, right? It, it's, it's nice in the beginning. Uh, if you have some of that just to solve a, a need. But if that starts to peripherate, usually this comes up in like code review and, you know, the team is like, hey, hey, wait a minute. We've got like 50 methods added to this. What, what are we doing here? Right. Um, and, you know, if it gets that far, it's like, well, okay, guys, like let's, let's actually refactor this. Right. Let's, let's leave the struct the way it is. Let's pull out all this presentation logic. Let's put it into a presenter. We'll inject the struct there or whatever object. And now we have a better object oriented design here. We have some cleaner objects that are dedicated for the behavior that they're trying to do. I guess I'm trying to dis what I'm essentially distilling this down to is the S single responsibility principle uh, in solid design. So yeah. <laughs> so what, what I what I took out of that is that active record relations uh, as they get returned should be structs. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, I'm glad you went there because let's let's talk about That's... active support here. Come on, let's let's talk about active support. I get the feeling. Oh boy! I get the feeling. Oh you're an enormous fan of Active Support. I think I think this is no. something you really like. Oh man, you guys have opened up a whole can of worms here. Oh, 
Yeah, no, uh, I am not a I am not a fan of active support. I um, it is not it is not my favorite. Uh, it's it's actually probably the worst of of the of the Rails stack, just because uh, it really does uh, manipulate a lot of the uh, core you know primitives of libraries and so forth. But it uses monkey patching all throughout, right? So that everywhere can be, that, that it just leads to a lot of su- surprising behavior, right? I've been in some sticky situations with Rails where you know things have been monkey patched, or somebody else's monkey patched. You know, they've had some monkey patch on top of Active Support, you know, nestled in their Ruby <laughs> app somewhere, and I had to slowly figure this out. And you know, that's just oh man, that's just not fun. So <laughs> <laughs> my my favorite one is somebody put a uh, a thread local variable fetcher on a date object. So that they could get the uh, current account. <laughs> oh, so wow. you, you could say, you know, date tomorrow, and then user. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh no! <laughs> yeah, I always on my teams and stuff, and anybody tries to reach for that, right? I'll try to push people to be like, "Hey, is there an object here that we can define and, and encapsulate this behavior?" Or, you know, like we were talking earlier, my favorite is to be like, "Maybe we could just add a little bit of a custom refinement, right, for our object, or sorry, for our application." And, and let's let's just add the refinement there. And then that's isolated. At least it's encapsulated, isolated. It's not going to bleed into the rest of the app. And it's not going to cause surprising behavior for anybody uh, coming onto the team and, and wondering, like, how how did this happen? So, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm de- yeah, sorry. I'm definitely not a fan of uh, active support. Yeah. <laughs> so what you're asking everybody here is somebody, please go go recreate active support library uh, with refinements. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, so in some sense, right, um, I have pulled out just so just to be fair, right, in some sense, I have pulled out some of the better ideas from active support. And I I put them into my refinements gem a little bit. One of the ones I liked is like the, the including and excluding syntax that was recently introduced uh, into Rails on arrays. It's a nice way to um, include additional elements into your array or exclude those elements. And so I actually have a, a similar refinement for that in my refinements library. So there are some interesting and good ideas, but again, that's just me saying, "Hey, let's not vacuum patch this. Let's let's bring this in as as a proper refinement." The the other thing, I guess, if it helps, right, is I I do do a lot of Rails work, but I also do a lot of Ruby stuff. You know, just pure Ruby um, at the much lower level, and so. Being able to have some of this extra syntactical goodness through the refinements gives me that kind of superpower at the at a lower level Ruby level, right? When I'm not working in a web framework like Rails, um, if that helps uh, kind of make a little bit more sense of the impetus and the idea uh, behind building that library. Yeah, I have a lot to dig in here with the refinements gem you have. It looks like a lot <laughs> of good stuff here. <laughs> Yeah, it's been one of those things that, you know, you just kind of slowly build out. And then, you know, as you start to build more complex things and use it in other places, you're like, hey, actually, I realized that there's some extra things I could do here that'd be kind of nice, just make my job a little bit easier. And so a lot of that's been born out of like all the open source work that I do, all my major projects, all my production work, right? It's like, hey, you know, I, I, I've been seeing this pattern reoccur, right? Multiple times. And it's like, I think that could be extracted, right? Like either you know, a new object or in this case, refinement, right? Like it's small enough. It makes sense. It feels really good uh, with the existing refinements. So just kind of pull it into there. So it's been a, it's been a slow, you know, kind of gradual evolution. Yeah. I was going to ask about the pattern matching. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which is uh, yeah. So a part of it, Ruby yeah, I dread. <laughs> oh, just, oh, it's interesting. It yeah. just makes me angry so, and confused. So I'm, I'm curious about that. That's, um, 
Is it the new syntax that kind of uh, like throws you off the way that uh, you write a, a, a case statement using the in syntax there? Or like, what is it about it that you don't uh, don't enjoy? I guess I'm just kind of curious. The word then gives me flashbacks to JavaScript. Got a real aversion to the word then. Just just makes me feel like it's kind of uh, JavaScript promises all over again. Just makes it feel asynchronous. Oh. No, 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 I'm joking. The pattern matching <laughs> I got into when I was um, prepping for the Ruby Free episode we did one, two years ago. And I did a review. I think, it, when did it come in? Ruby 2.7. 2. 2. It's quite um, recent. Yes. Yep. Yep. And then it just went, it finally got approved in Ruby 3. And then, and then, but, the, but, but not all of it, I should say, right? So in three, in Ruby 3.0, uh, it became production ready. But there's actually a few more things that are still getting turned on. I think in uh, Ruby 3.2 that will come out this Christmas, uh, we'll finally be able to use the fine pattern matching uh, for arrays. I th- and I might be I might be a little off on this, right? Uh, I read a ton of stuff, and sometimes I can't remember where things are coming from or when they're coming in. But I think it's 3.2 where they're going to add the fine uh, pattern, which gives you the ability to do uh, fine pattern matching on arrays that might be elements within the middle of the array. On the so you'd star the outside and star the end. If I remember right, that's uh, been a bit of a performance concern, and I think that's coming in uh, 3.2, which would be kind of cool. But again, I might be wrong on this too. It, it, I might be thinking of the wrong form of array pattern matching, but I, I think that's what's happening in, in Ruby 3.2 uh, this Christmas. I would have re- really drilled down to this because I didn't think a lot of people know about pattern matching and a load of really good Ruby <laughs> developers I know don't use it at all because it's so new. And uh, my just to start off this discussion, why not just use if? What's wrong with a nice if statement? Why can't we just have <laughs> an if statement? Honest, honest to God, I know... I've watched your Boulder Ruby talk. It's a great talk on pattern matching, oh. but just to kind of take it down for the people at home, <laughs> why can't we just have a nice if statement like we used to have in the eighties? <laughs> oh, Luke, you're you're killing me. You're you're killing me. This is this is great. Well, yes, you can. You, you totally can. But obviously, right? Um, that's a lot of complex uh, branching logic, right? Um, if you want to do like a like a, a hash or a struct or any kind of object that uh, can deconstruct itself, right, into a pattern matching. That makes it that makes it really kind of complicated to read through that code. And so, with pattern matching that they gave us in in Ruby, right, uh, it gives us an elegant way in which to write that with much uh, con- uh, concise syntax, and, and namely through the case statement, right. So the the case statement now is just case in instead of case when, right, uh, is the is the subtle change. But what's really cool about this is when you do the in, right, like so you have a case statement, you have your object coming in. And then uh, when you write your first uh, branching logic there, the, the first in, you get a nice concise way to pluck out uh, the keys and values out of the hash that you might be caring about or the array or any kind of object that can basically deconstruct itself as an array or a hash. And I, I guess I should step back just a little bit for those that are listening. The, when I say deconstruct, what I mean by that is there's a deconstruct keys and a deconstruct, um, shoot, I'm forgetting off the top of my head what it is for arrays. but those methods, if they're defined on your object, on your custom object, that is how you can take any plain old Ruby object, uh, teach it how to deconstruct itself so that it can be used in pattern matching, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it certainly does make it's, sense. It's I, I, it's quite an advanced thing to do. I don't you know, I don't write code like that. I, I write, you know, <laughs> if it's this, then then for God's sakes, don't continue processing the transaction. That's the kind of that's the kind of code I'm writing. You know, if it's this, then then no, then stop. Just return. Just don't do it. But 
it's a very sophisticated tool. And I wondered if there was like a specific, if you can can tell us a specific project, specific problem, when you thought that is what I'm going to use pattern matching for, and it's really going to improve this code. Yeah. So there's two things I'm really excited about. One, one is is um, I read a lot of CLIs in in Ruby, so I have a lot of CLI gems. And what I love about um, being able to use pattern matching from from a CLI perspective, right, a command line interface, is what I can do is in my uh, shell object, the object that takes the raw input from a user on the command line, right? So like, let's say that you type, uh, you know, like one, one of one of my gems, like RubySmith, right? And you're trying to create a, a new Ruby project. You want to pass in a bunch of parameters, right? To say, hey, um, I either want to enable RSpec or disable it, or I want to, um, I want to add Rubicop or I don't. Right. Um, what's cool about those is those command line objects, when they come in, and, and these are just pure booleans, right? You're either saying dash dash rspec or dash dash no dash rspec, right? To like turn it off. Yep. What's what's cool about that is you can you can pattern match on all those flags that are coming in. And based on the behavior of those, uh, you can easily dictate um, what you're going to uh, do as a processor, right? How you're going to process that inputting command. So I find it um, I find it extremely powerful when you're writing command lines to basically just pattern match the input that's coming in and then being able to delegate to your objects that need to handle that action to do what the user is asking you to do. So I really love it in that context. The other context that I really love about pattern matching is is let's say that you're working with like APIs. You know, a lot of us, uh, especially when you're doing more complex Rails apps. You know, you're interacting with like a third-party service, or you have some kind of like data that's coming in, and maybe it's not well formed, right? Sadly, some third-party services uh, don't do a very good job of uh, writing good APIs and giving you good uh, stru- data structures that you can deal with. And so, uh, you can take that and and basically use pattern matching just to p- kind of parse out the things that you want, and then turn it in. Well, back to what we were talking about earlier, maybe a struct that you have locally, right? You can put that into and give it a, a proper name so that you can actually do your internal processing. So this gives you, it gives you a lot of firepower in order to do a lot of that complex logic, <laughs> like you were saying earlier, Luke, with the if, then, else, else, else. Uh, you can actually just look for the pattern, pull out the pieces that you need, and then happily go on uh, and, and process what you need to do for that input coming in. So there's a lot more other uses than that, but those are some of my favorites, right? Yeah. So I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, when I talk to you, I mean, I really feel the developer vibe, and I know that's your background, but is Mm -hmm. is all of Raygun that way? I mean, you know, it just kind of feels like when I talk to other companies, they're a little more corporate, a little more, you know, focused on maybe, you know, raising money or doing other things, you know. But it seems like when I talk to you, you're just, you know, down-to-earth developer dude. I like to think of myself as a down-to-earth developer dude. Um, Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Raygun is a little bit different. Um, So... You know, we're not heavily VC-backed. Um, you know, my business partner and I, when we started, we were both nerds, you know. Um, I, I might be the CEO today and I don't write code on the product. Um, but, you know, the joke internally is, you know, what's the definition of technical debt, Chuck? It's CEO code. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> Stuff to go fix. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, we, we, you uh, know, we, we're... Stories. We're, <laughs> we're a cash flow positive business, you know, we're not heavily VC funded, um, you know, but we, we, we are at a size now where we're, we are expanding and more and more folks are, are discovering what we're about. But yeah, we often look through things through that lens of a developer, you know, I wanted a 30,000 foot view, but I also want to go right down to an individual 
um, data point. Um, similarly, you know, I don't believe in averages. I want medians. I want P99s. I, I make better decisions that way. And so we try and drive that sort of thinking into our products and try and be as developer-minded uh, as we possibly can be. Yeah, I love that because, you know, for me, it's it's run by people who get me um, and you're not under pressure from like a VC to raise your prices or, you know, go hyper grow and then, oh, crap, now we're behind the eight ball with our money and now we've got to figure it out. You know, you're just going to keep growing, steadily moving. And, and I just love that. Yeah. I mean, the term these days is often referred to as product led growth, right? Like get people use the product mm -hmm. and say, hey, that's great. I want to give you money. Um, I don't think it's that complicated. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, folks, if you want to go check it out, you can go find them at raygun.com. Uh, you can actually sign up for a free trial right there on the website. Yeah, I'll never forget when I, I think it was uh, one of Avdi Grimm's tapas where he, you know, it has a case statement and then, you know, you want to catch when this specific, you know, error ha happens or, or you want to catch, is this of this type, right? Like, uh, there's there's so much that you can do more now, right? Than just equality. It's real. It's really neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, uh, it's it's. Oh man, it's it's. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I could talk for hours on this too, but um, it, it's it's so. It, it really is amazing because um, it gives you a way to check the type, right? So on the pattern match, the object coming in, you can check immediately. You know what type of object it is. And then inside that object, right, you can pull apart the attributes and figure out what you want uh, of, of the certain sort of attributes that are coming in. And then you can do something interesting, right, from a processing perspective. You know, as you were saying that, I was just thinking, like, the other thing that I really love is, like, for instance, in the DryRB ecosystem, um, I'm a big fan of monads and being able to add a little bit of functional goodness to my Ruby code, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's really delightful about dry monads um, and again, not to not to scare people uh, that are listening that are afraid of monads or they think it's a big scary uh, mathematical uh, terminology. If you just think of it as uh, as a union type, you know, just something is a success or something is a failure, and that is your monad that's coming back. What's quite elegant about this is in your pattern matching, you can just do a case statement on the result monad that's coming in, and then you do an in, and then you say success. And then whatever's packaged in the success, you know, might be a struct, it might be a different uh, primitive, like an array or a hash or something of that nature. You can pull those elements out and then do something interesting with it. But what's what's nice about the monads, though, is, again, they can only be one thing or the other. They can either be a success or a failure. That's it. So your, your pattern matching is just checking for success or failure and then doing something very interesting in that regard. So anyway, uh, just a nice way to have types in that case, right? in the case of monads, to be able to give you a little bit of clarity to your code uh, with very little syntax, just just a few lines of uh, ex extra code. So, yeah. You've just given me an amazing idea for my Friday night. I'm going to put in a pull request to dry monad that allows monads to be nil. <laughs> <laughs> bringing, oh. bringing a little sunshine to that part of the Ruby community. Oh, well, you, I think you missed the target, Luca. Uh, you should have done that on April 1st. Uh, I think you're a few days behind uh, <laughs> trying to get that PR up there. It's, it's not been a very productive <laughs> year. At this rate, it will be April the 1st again by the time I actually put it in. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, 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 Monad's quite an, quite, an advanced, quite an advanced topic, made even more advanced yeah. by awful programming languages like Haskell, which just confuses the... <laughs> confuses everyone no we love you haskell really we we love you and your <laughs> elephants but it is an advanced topic and there is an upfront cost yeah. 
you have to pay, you have to learn about it. You will never, it's not intuitive at all. You have to sit there, you have to watch the talks, you have to read it, you have to try it. And then once you get it and you can use it and value it, but you do have to put up quite a lot of upfront effort in order to kind of get get better code. Is that something that That's you true. find yourself doing more and more? Yeah, it's um yeah, I, I, I feel your pain too, and I've had that experience as well. The thing is, is that I've gotten so used to it, right? Coming into teams and saying, hey guys, I'd really like to bring monads in here, right? It would help simplify some of our conditional logic. And the cool thing about monads is it gives us a way to write fail-safe code, right? If we have a failure, uh, this this kind of gets into the p- railway pattern, pipeline pattern. Shoot, I can't forget of the, I, I'm, I'm forgetting off the top of my head who uh, has a really brilliant talk on this. Um, I think if you search for it, you'll find, if you just search for like railway pattern or railway pattern in Haskell or something of that nature, you'll come up with the, shoot, I'm totally forgetting his name. I, I'd love to attribute him because it's a great talk. But he talks about the railway pattern where, you know, think of it as train tracks. And you're, you know, you're going down the track with the train and then you hit a fork. Now you could go the success path and boom, you're done. You hit your, you hit your destination as the train, you're done. Everything's good. But you can hit down the, the second side of the fork and that's a failure path. But what's cool about monads though is even though you have a failure, like you could try to resolve it and, and turn it into a success so that it forks again and then you finally come out as a success. So basically you're humming along, you have a failure, but then you still end up as a success because you resolve the conflict. So to give you a concrete example too, I, I know on, uh, it always drives me nuts on podcasts, right? Everybody's talking about these things, but sometimes it's hard to conceptualize. So the, the thing to think about is think of it as making an API request where maybe you're hitting the, you're making the API request, but in some cases, right, that server might be down or, or maybe you need to retry a few times. Well, you know, using monads in that regard, right? You could actually have a little bit of like, well, it might fail because it, it uh, either timed out at a certain time or the request didn't make it at all. Like the server didn't come back with anything, but maybe the server's notorious for never really having good uptime. So maybe you build that in to try a few more times and then finally turn that into a success when you get that result and then pass it on uh, or just fail uh, entirely. But it gives you a nice way to, uh, you know, to really build in some more of that more sophisticated logic without having, again, without having to have too many if the else conditional logic or case statements of, in, in, of that nature. Sorry, I kind of went a little bit off on a tangent there, uh, uh, Luke, but to bring this back though, the, yep. the thing I, I, I feel is, you know, the teams are like, well, they kind of grumble a little bit and they're like, ah, I don't know. This, this looks scary. This, this little monad that you're trying to bring in. I, I don't know if I want this. And usually what I do is uh, I kind of bring it in gently, right? Just kind of show in a, a target use case where we have some pretty gnarly code. And I bring that monad in and I show how I collapse it. Like I, I'm usually deleting lots of lines of code when I bring in a monad, right? Because I'm throwing out all that conditional logic and then show them how like, well, look how elegant this is, right? With only a few lines of code, a little bit of pipelining, a little bit of functional flow there. Like in Ruby, right? When I say pipelining, uh, you know, think of in Ruby, like doing a try block, you know, or sorry, not not a try, but a tap. It's like some side effect that you want, but then you want to continue after that tap and then maybe do something else. So then you use then in Ruby. So then and tap are kind of the... 
that pipelining kind of flow fits a little bit like how monads work, if that makes oh, sense. Oh, I never thought of it and like so, that. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally on board yeah. with what you're saying there. We did a uh, episode <laughs> last week on railway oriented programming, really good episode with uh, Abby Olawode, um, who's a Nigerian software developer, but it's not out yet, so I no. can't link to it. Ha ha ha. Is that uh, talk you were nice. talking about, Scott Wallashin's talk? You might be right. I think you're right. I'm gonna. There's a couple. Yeah, yes, you, you are right. Versions you are right. out there. Yeah. I'll link to the latest version yeah. in the show notes. Yeah, Abby was on last week, and she's written a great article for the Honey Badge that I blog about the monads. And uh, I kind of get it. Now. I kind of got it before, <laughs> but you do have to have quite a lot of business logic, in my opinion, in order to make that trade off. But if you've got a significant amount of logic, then you can kind of delete all of your branching and it looks really nice. It's obscure. Yeah. It's magic. It's weird, <laughs> functional, funky ideas. Is that why you've called your site the, the Alchemists? Because it <laughs> uses obscure, esoteric knowledge. <laughs> Well, not quite, but in that in that vein, it's it's really for it's really meant for you know the crafters, right? Um, I, I guess I, I know I know people can't see see me on the podcast, but I'm starting to get a little gray. I'm getting a, a little old in my years. And is that uh, real though? It, or have you kind of dyed it to make yourself look more sophisticated? Because I know people do that. <laughs> I was, you know, Luke. I, I was I wanted to come on here and show a little bit of maturity and age. So I, I thought this wig might be able to pull it off. Man, you came to the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry no but usually there's an adult on this show but it's it's my show this week so yeah i'm sorry about that that is cool man it's just us kids yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i'll be there i'll be there soon i'll be there soon I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm 40 next year and i am i am worried i'm entering a period of of software decline you know what i mean it's like it's like yeah. being a musician, you know, what a kind of good musicians die at twenty seven. I just feel like, you know, thirty nine, forty, forty one, unless I have a really big hit now, this is my last this is my last chance <laughs> for software for software greatness. I really love the term alchemy. I, I love that word. I love the history of alchemy. Obviously it's British, you know, you've got the famous alchemists like John D that called Queen Elizabeth first, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a world I love. And you've used, you've used the symbols on your website. The, yeah. I don't know what alphabet yeah. they're from, but the traditional symbols for the planets to represent the yeah. bodies of alchemy. I, I'm just really interested in where you're going with it. I've had a read, but in your own words, what's, so what is software alchemy about? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's really about the joy of the craft, right? And for me, you know, for us being engineers, right? Um, it's, it's part science, right? And technical aptitude and capability. But at the same time, right? It's, it's super, super creative, right? So there's an artistic side to what we do, right? So not only are we very technical and we need to be adept in that regard, right? But we also need to blend the creative and, and Ruby again, right? Just kind of my language of love there is uh, lends itself really well to that, right? I, I think that's why we're all here in the, in the Ruby ecosystem, not just because Annie Swan and Matt's is nice and the community is nice, but 
he actually gave us a really beautiful language in order to express ourselves really elegantly that way. So it's a blend. It's it, it's a it's a it's a blend of the craft. And so Alchemist, my my site is and company is really all about the joy of the craft, right? And it, it's really meant for again, Luke, using the old terminology. That's why I kind of like a little bit of the throwback, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Being modern in terms of a technologist, but then also a foot in the past, right? Of where we've come. So to expand upon that a little bit, if you think about uh, guilds of, of old, right? You know, when you were starting out in the craft and starting out in your career journey, you'd be an apprentice yep. and you'd focus for a while with a master. And that expert, uh, in this case, I, I, I call them crafters. You'd eventually grow to become a crafter yourself and then, you know, kind of pay it forward, right? Spread that joy and knowledge to the younger people who you were at that time long ago, mm-hmm. once again, so that they can be lights uh, and uh, go out and, and be champions of, of good, good, good programming etiquette. But in between, right, you're you're kind of a journeyer. You're kind of, you know, you're not quite an apprentice. You're not quite in a crafter, but you're kind of getting there. And so Alchemist is a way to share that joy and expertise and give people a way to keep leveling up, keep growing. But then also, if they want to be part of the collective and what I'm trying to kind of build and, and fight for, I guess, is Given us a way for us that have, have become crafters who are experts in our craft and, you know, constantly growing a way to, you know, work and live independently the, the way that you want. So I've been kind of exploring the space where what I'm doing now is contract work uh, and, you know, picking up uh, client engagements that I can help and, and give a lending hand, you know, in terms of training or team augmentation or, you know, just good, you know, project management skills, but also um, hoping to get to a point where Maybe through, I've been kind of getting into GitHub sponsorships, right? And, you know, hopefully people being able to pay for good open source work, you know, maybe want to see that flourish. Like maybe us as engineers uh, can have a career path where we don't have to just kind of retire into oblivion or wear the, the, the cone head and become a technical manager, but we can stay as architects, right? We can stay uh, as pure engineers and, and we can stay in the craft and have a way forward in which to uh, keep expanding upon that mastery, but not get caught up in kind of, you know, the cog or bigger corporations where you kind of sort of disappear into oblivion. (laughs) I I don't feel like an engineer and I certainly don't feel like a senior one. I'm too young. And I don't (laughs) like the title software engineer. I've never felt like what I was doing since I started working with computers when I was who knows how years old, I never felt what I was doing was engineering. It felt like writing. When I was kind of working on motorbikes, used to work on cars, used to work in a garage, fine, um, it's engineering, you know, and I've done some hardware projects. Software doesn't feel like that to me. Do you, do you feel like an engineer? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question, and I tend to so there's kind of divide, right? Um, and and I guess I kind of swing a little bit on the opposite end, so to kind of be a counterpoint to you, I like the idea of engineer because when I think of engineer, I think of the rigor that goes into it, right? And so I'm really diligent about that, right? Like I I try to build in like really rigorous uh, Rubicop rules and reek rules and linting type stuff and practices into what I do as an engineer. Oh yeah, shout out um, to Reek. That's, that's one hell of a gem, man. That's one hell of a gem. Yes. <laughs> it's so sorry, give, give, uh, forgive me. A little bit of a tangent here just really quickly. But with Rubicop and Reek, what I like about him, especially Reek, like you were saying, Luke, it, it is a, a, a much harder uh, gem than like Rubicop. 
But what's nice is, is those, those coding buddies, I, I basically kind of consider them like my automated coding buddies. Like they never fail me, right? They never let me down. They never skim over and be like, ah, it's okay, Brooke. You can, you can get away with it today. They're right there in your face, right? And I like that rigor. I like that discipline and that rigor that goes into that. And that kind of folds into what you were saying earlier, Luke, which is, I think that's what an engineer in my mind means to me is somebody who has that discipline and that practice. And they're constantly honing that every, every day, every year. Um, and, and making that rigor, you know, even better, stronger so that you can do more with less. Um, but you're also extremely consistent in what you do. Right. Mm. So I, I think there's, there's value in that because. Because I, I would love to, for us, you know, as an engineering uh, culture and society, right, to be respected for the engineering prowess, the, the great things that we build with, you know, good rigor and discipline. I'm talking about, you know, good code quality, good security practices, consistent deploys and deliveries, uh, high customer engagement, right? Like that takes a lot of work uh, that goes into that. And you've probably worked on teams and other companies that, you know, that don't have that. They're kind of flying by the seat of their pants. Uh, they're throwing things out. Yep. Their customers are not terribly happy, and you can see that, right? You you can really see that. You can appreciate it when you use that software that has that kind of joy and a little bit of elegance built into it, right? You know that the team behind that put a lot of work into it to get it there. An analogy I like to make—I don't know if it's a fair one—but like you know, when you go out shopping or you look at a master of the craft in like the wood space, right? You see a, like a really beautiful piece of like furniture or something carved really elegantly, right? Like that is somebody who put a lot of time and effort and skill into that, right? And you can really, you pick that up, it's tangible. You can really look at it and really be surprised by the depth of everything that went into it. I think of that in software too, right? If you can bring that joy to your customers, but also to your fellow engineers, that, that is a great place to be. And I'm always thinking about that, like the, the I guess the DE, the developer experience. Like when you get onto the team, right? I, I want you to be excited. I want you to be really empowered to work within the code base, right? To add features with minimal effort. You don't have to move a lot of sludge around just to get that feature in or to, or to fix that bug. And then also as a user of the software that you're building, right? You also have that same sense of joy. So both ends of the spectrum there kind of really mean a lot to me. And and it takes it just takes a ton of uh, rigor uh, to pull that off. Yeah, I just love that you brought up software craftsmanship. I, I remember the, the days of uh, Corey Haynes coming to RailsConf and- Oh uh, yeah. Really blew me the way at the first time I saw I saw him give a just a lightning talk and talk about you know software craftsmanship and his code retreats right which a lot I feel like a, a lot of that mentorship side of it is definitely missed in a lot of the onboarding processes out there yeah and I, that's definitely something I, I'd recommend people check out I, I'll le- I'll leave a link in the show notes for uh, a, a great talk that Corey Haynes has with uh, was it Scott Hanselman who's now Microsoft. Uh, but it was, I, I don't know, I, I, I love thinking of the idea of software, software engineering as like a craft, you know, that we're all, all trying to, you know, continuously learn, <laughs> right? Like, and hone, right? And, and the whole apprenticeship side, like I, I love uh, ThoughtBot's approach to kind of ingesting their engineers, right? At, from an apprenticeship level. And there are a few other companies out there that do the apprenticeship. And I just love seeing that. And I, I really wish I had started on that path instead of just getting thrown to the wolves and being, you know, all right, if you survive, you're a software engineer, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I'm super sensitive to it too because um, I, I saw both the 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 dark side and the good side of it when I was young, right? Starting out. What's um, the dark side? I had a really bad. What's the dark side? <laughs> well, no, I was. 
I was kind of kind of scratching a little along what Valentina was saying there, which is, you know, I had a I had a really bad early employment gig where, you know, I'm fresh out of college, right? I'm super eager to do what I want to do, but I also don't understand a lot of things, right? And in the early days of, of colleges and and even 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 this happens today, actually, you don't always have all the skills that you need, right, to be an engineer. You have the you have the concepts and the principles, but you still need kind of like a guiding hand. So again, back to Valentino's point, right? Um, having that mentor or that sensei there, right? That you can kind of be under, uh, under the wing and you have that protection so you can grow and, uh, you know, uh, flourish into a better engineer. Th- that means a lot to me. And, and I worry about it a lot when I, I'm working with younger engineers too, is making sure that they're getting that kind of training and knowledge, but it needs dedication though. So. You know, you're absolutely right, Valentino. You, you can't just throw a bunch of young engineers onto a team and be like, well, hey, guys, uh, there's a lot of experts here. They'll help you out. But like if they're not dedicated to like pair up with those individuals or that's not part of their job, like maybe 50-50 split, right? Some technical work that they're really deep into or half of it split with the, with the younger engineer. I just feel it's doing a disservice, right, to, to our industry and, and to those younger engineers because the faster we can make them uh, better engineers, the more people we can have speaking about this and helping others, right? It just heals the ecosystem as a whole. So it's just a crazy place for us right now, right? Like there's so much demand for software engineering. We need more engineers. Um, and companies want to buy up anybody that they can get, but they're not giving them uh, the, the tools and the expertise to make them into really professional engineers. They're, they're really throwing them into the chopper, so to speak, and hoping they make it out alive. <laughs> Yeah, we, we've talked about this before, but really, like, if you're out there hiring people and, and you're not hiring, you know, younger engineers with your your senior engineers, you're missing out on that whole craftsmanship, right? Like, if you're if you're focusing on the the tail end of people's careers, you know, you're gonna get, <laughs> I don't know, you'll you'll be missing out on a lot of creativity, right? Because yeah. you know, part of not knowing a lot of the craft is, you know, you explore a lot more of the craft, right? As someone younger coming in, and you can miss out on a lot of that if you're not hiring those people, right? Yeah. I don't know. I think it's often overlooked. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And just just giving them, showing them how to get the right tools built in, right? Like, um, just little things, right? Like, hey, have you heard of RSS feed readers and syndicated feeds? These are the pods, podcasts, and blogs, and things that you should be reading, right, on a, on a daily basis. Are you aware of Ruby core issues? Just subscribe to that. Be tuned into what's happening within the Ruby community, right? You might not understand everything, but at least you're starting to synthesize some of that coming in. And as you mature, you'll start to, it'll start to get clearer and clearer and better and stronger. So, you know, there's just so many soft skills that come with this, right, that they're just missing too. It's not just the technical side, but just, you know, the soft skills and the tools and the augmentation that they need in order to empower themselves to be uh, better engineers. So, yeah, sorry, sorry. Another topic I guess I could spend hours on, so forgive me, but yeah. I I love it. I mean, I I remember I came from, uh, you know, when I first learned Rails and Ruby, it was like just whatever I learned by myself. And I was the only person on the team that knew Ruby or Rails. (laughs) And I helped grow a a kind of arm to the business of the company I was at. But (laughs) <laughs> you know, I didn't know what I was doing, really. And uh, then I joined a consultancy of 
three people that were test-driven development, very honed in their craft. And I like completely blew off the charts from there as because I was, you know, really honing my craft with somebody, you know, I had a mentor at the time and they helped me like I never did test driven development before. And I learned tests. And it once you can get on that path, it's just so, so easy to uh, make those that make that progress that you need to, to become better. Yeah, I hate tests. Yeah, I. <laughs> <laughs> And then you grow well, old and you hate yeah. tests. <laughs> uh, uh, Luke, maybe we'll have to spend a little some some intense pairing sessions here. I'll, I'll try to I'll try to make it joyful for you, right? So that uh, so that you don't feel so so down. So I love the article <laughs> you've written because it gets really into nitty gritty stuff, and you throw in some really advanced things too, which is really cool. And it's a fantastic way of kind of just dropping things in. You've, you've sprinkled a few things in there to kind of encourage people <laughs> to inquire. It's uh, it's very nicely yeah. done. But the <laughs> trouble is putting aside the time to really kind of improve your product, improve your team, improve yourself. That is very yeah. challenging. I sat down earlier in the year. I think it's the Aspect Free book. Great book. Yep. So I'm going to work my way through this book. I haven't worked my way through that book at all. It's sitting on my shelf completely unread because I had to get out there and desperately fix stuff. But you end up basically in this kind of vicious cycle yep. where you never have enough time. Um, now, I know you as a consultant go into companies that go do a lot of they've got some kind of massive rails app right it's out of control from doing that from coming in and being being the problem solver is that something you kind of get a get get a real kick out of versus you know just kind of jobbing day to day how is that kind of development experience because i i know you've done both yeah it's definitely a different mindset and i definitely wouldn't say i'm a huge fan of it uh, because usually as a consultant right the unfortunate fact is um you usually are in a situation, right, where things are a little gnarly and pretty rough. And so you need to spend some time helping those teams actually clean up some of that mess, right, so that we can do bigger and better things. Mm -hmm. It is a, a bit of a downside for sure. The one nice thing about consultancy, though, is at least you control your hours, right? You have more freedom. You have more freedom on your time. You're not really usually generally held to like, you know, a solid eight hours. You can kind of split up your day or kind of mix and match, right? And it depends on the project too, right? Um, most projects, it's kind of like paid, like an hourly type thing. So really, you're just billing hour hours. If you're doing other kind of engagements where it might be like value-based or something, where you kind of go in and say, hey, look, for this package, for this, I don't know, we're, we're going to say that I'm going to deliver $50,000, $100,000 value here. Like it's a package deal type thing. You, you would want to know what you're getting into at that point, right? You, you'd want to have a, 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 like a basically a pre-built solution that you're going to plug in for them mm -hmm. to solve so that you don't go over, right? Otherwise, you're kind of eating the cost in that case. But all this to say, though, all this to say is that uh, at least you have some of that freedom and agency uh, to go in and uh, do that versus just kind of plugging away as uh, kind of a cog in a wheel, uh, so to speak. The other thing when it comes to consultancy that I like to do is, is, is try to ensure that when you're coming in, right, like, is it, are you just adding augmentation or is it a combination? Because the things I, I really enjoy is, you know, being able to teach and train, you know, some of the soft skills that we we're talking about, like level the teams up in that versus just hardcore, just, hey, look, you're, you're just a staff augmentation. We just want you to uh, solve a bunch of these problems. And then, you know, you know, let's have, know how many hours that is. So you kind of need to navigate that space as a, as a consultant, right? Really, really be upfront about that. Really talk to the client about that. And, 
make sure that there's a lot of avenues in which you can bring a lot of firepower to than just 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 somebody sitting in a chair trying to bash out a whole bunch of features. So, yeah. I would uh, I would love to see more people offering kind of packages to come in for consultancy because I've worked in a few large companies. We've had external consultants come in to kind of hit various parts of the code base. We've got big problems. We've got stuff that's on fire. And the value you get from getting someone in who really knows the language, who's really hit these problems before, is really immense. But getting getting business buy-in for that is really very challenging. And it's one of the things I know Chuck's kind of thinking about on the top end, topenddevs.com site, which we're launching, <laughs> is to kind of make these services more accessible, especially in the Ruby community, where there are a lot of Rails that's out there that are really big, they are profitable, but they kind of need a refresh. I don't know what the answer is, yeah, but... I don't know. It, it, we've we've got to make it easier to get guys in who have kind of learned all these hard lessons and transfer some of these skills onto the kind of a junior de- dev community. Yeah, I I agree with you one hundred percent. There, it's um, it's definitely a sticky point in the industry because um, a lot of the people that have the the money, the purchasing power, they don't necessarily always understand the the technical reasons why you want to bring in somebody, uh, you know, like us that uh, has that firepower. And understand that you just need to pay a little bit of that time to let, you know, somebody like me or any other consultant that's coming in to train your staff so that they can actually be more efficient. So it it hurts in the beginning, right? It's a little bit of a slowdown. People are not producing as much, right? Because I'm here. I'm trying to train the team. I'm trying to get them ramped up so that they can become faster. Um, And that takes time. And so you need, you really need somebody when you're talking to that has a really open mind and a really long tail view of what you're trying to do. Because if they're just in it for the short term, they're they're not going to get what they want. And it's, you know, it's bad for the client. It's bad for you. But if you give it the time for it to flourish, then amazing things happen. But it does take it, it does take quite a bit of time, actually. So it's one of my things, like, you know, for, for me, like, I feel that my job is done well if, if I can walk away and I've made it so that I'm completely replaceable, right? Hopefully you never have to hire me again. Granted, I'm out of a job, but hey, uh, <laughs> I did, that's good. I, I'm really happy. I, yeah, but like, if you don't have to come hire me back, right? That that means that I've I've done my job, right? I've made you guys sufficient so that you guys never have to do this again, and 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 hopefully you flourish even from that point. And that that feels good to me, right? Like that feels like the right thing to do, even though I'm slowly making it so that I don't have more clients. But but that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> well, I, I do I do think that's the case. I think there's an enormously growing market. I mean, people people talk about the rails are slowing down. It's really not. I mean, the market's gone through the yeah. roof for Rails developers in the last two years. So yeah. it, it's it's not the case. But what I would love to see, especially from some of the topics you talk about, which are really quite naughty topics, is some kind of package. <laughs> you know, we can go in, you can just kind of buy buy the package. And I don't know what it looks like, man, but I just feel like there's a real I, I, opportunity there. Yeah, I agree with you too, and I, I don't I don't have a good answer for it either. Um, it's a it, it's such a it's such a complicated problem because it depends on the team and the and the company and the client and the mentality. It's it's really hard to build something that kind of one size fits all type thing. It's 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 almost on a case by case basis. Yeah, yeah. Plus, too, you fight with uh, you know the whole team augmentation where a lot of companies thought processes. Well, let's just get this you know external consultancy to come in and and help with the work, right? Like. <laughs> yeah. Rather than help build the team to do better work and more work, right, at less time. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point, uh, Valentino, because I've seen that too. And 
the person that's purchasing you, buying you to come in, right? They'll say one thing. They're really excited about what you want to do, but they didn't inform the team. And so you get onto the site, right? And the team's like, who's this guy? Why are they telling me what to do? And so they they weren't bought in. So So there's a disconnect on who's paying you to come in. And then the team, their expectations of what they expect from you. And that is a really, really tough situation to be in because I'm not trying to be corrosive or an antagonist in this case, right? I'm just trying to help you. But if they're if they're already on the defense, right, then it's really hard to warm them up and unwind them and be like, hey, look, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to ruin your world. I'm not trying to take things away from you. But yeah, it's again, it's one of those things, right? Like you got to you got to really do the research. You got to really reach past, you know, who you're interfacing with from a contract and money perspective, but also getting a chance to talk to the team and make sure that they're on board as well. So, yeah. What I want is like an advanced boot camp. I got really fat a few years ago and I paid a personal trainer who was a local professional soccer player to kind of beat me into shape. There's like <laughs> photos of me half naked on the internet. You can look at it. it really worked really well. <laughs> and, you know, I paid a lot of money for it and I, you know, it was really, really great. He did an amazing job. What I want is that for software development. I want a boot camp, but for people who are kind of intermediate advanced, where someone will take me and absolutely beat the hell out of me and really make yeah. me into a much better software developer. It doesn't exist, but uh, I'd love to I'd love to do it. And a lot of the topics you cover, especially you know, the screencast, are those level of topics where you're like, fine, you're a professional. Yeah. Let's take it to the next level. Uh, so it's software. Yeah. I know I don't know what the name is. You know what I'm saying? Oh, it just yeah, beats the code into me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep. I would definitely check out Code Retreats because they are out there still, and they do pr- they provide a lot of value in that way where you get plugged in and everybody works on a very similar problem, and then you know there's e- even some of them have you're pairing with people, uh, you know you're reviewing stuff, and a lot can be learned uh, and kind of plugged in. Maybe not as you know <laughs> as easily as you would like or or forcefully. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I was, I was going to say, um, the other interesting aspect of that too, is I've always thought that like, maybe like a, like a solo pairing session too, uh, or several sessions, right. Where you offer kind of like, um, in fact, actually, I, I think Ofti does this. I don't know how long he does this. Um, I, I know he used to have like this kind of tea time or this sort of like co- coding pairing type session that you could just kind of like, you know, hang out with him and, and he would help you solve work through problems. But I think it was short lived. And, and what I'm talking about is like, you know, kind of like what you're saying, Luke, like basically it's like a personal trainer, right? Like you're, you're hiring one of us to come in and all right, we're going to do this boot camp together, but I'm going to be constantly on your shoulder uh, through this entire time. So that you come out of this uh, well-adjusted engineer. <laughs> it's funny you say that because of course I have, I did do have the Grimm's uh, mastering the open, uh, mastering the object oriented mindset when it first came out and must've been three or four years ago uh. now. Uh, and that was pretty, nice. that was pretty hardcore, uh, you know, really getting into stuff. And I got, I got a lot of value out of it because I've always hated object oriented programming, but I never really understood why. And now I know exactly why I didn't like it. Uh, <laughs> joking aside, it's a great course. It's a great course. That's uh, awesome. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've overshared again. <laughs> That's. That, that's really cool. I, I didn't know um, Avdi had done that for his uh, object-based uh, course. So that's that's really good. That's that's nice to hear. Yeah. Is there anything else we'd like to talk about? Uh, uh, no, I guess. Uh, I mean, just 
you know, uh, thanks uh, to both of you, uh, Valentino, Luke, uh, for having me on. Really, really appreciate the, the dialogue and the discussion. Uh, total fun. Um, I, I know I could talk all afternoon on this. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, I, I love the craft. Uh, I love everything about it. So I, I really enjoy this. Yeah, this was really great. I loved all the different uh, tangents we got to get on. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I guess we're going to go into picks. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. I don't know if you're familiar with the infamous Ruby Rose pick system. We pick something. It could be anything. If Chuck's on the show, it's usually a board game. If Dave's on the show, it's usually a power tour. If Valentino's on the show, it's, it's often code-related. Valentino, what are your picks this week? <laughs> it is code-related. <laughs> I... <laughs> I came across the uh, this RB library. It basically lets you turn Ruby into like a versatile command line utility, and it basically just like instant execs what you pipe into it, which is really it's really neat, uh, clever solution. I've been using it a ton lately, uh, and I love it. The next one that we had uh, Adam Gordon Bell on a few episodes ago. I want to say yeah, five thirty, but he. We, we dove into command line utility stuff and I saw he just published this great tool on the earthly blog, text mode, where you get to basically read any URL in just plain text. <laughs> and it, there's like some machine uh, learning algorithms that gets run on it and he uses the links browser. And it's, it's just really neat. I've been playing with that as well. And the last one I'll just plug is a, uh, I saw this on Twitter. Somebody made a Morse theme arcade rhythm game which is really neat. So it's uh, kind of like the Morse code words like drop and you have to like try and place them like it's a uh, dance dance revolution. <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun. And uh, I, I think that's going to be my next uh, hardware project. Thanks, Brooke. Do you have any picks for us this week? Yeah, well, yeah, actually, I I don't know if this has been mentioned on the show before, but you kind of uh, skated across it a little bit, Luke. Um, I, I would recommend... Polished Ruby by Jeremy Evans. Uh, that came out not too uh, long ago, and it's a it's a really wonderful uh, read. So I highly recommend that if you'd like to kind of up your your game and kind of r- learn from a Ruby core uh, team member. So that's a nice one. And then I guess I'll have to I guess I'll have to pick a, a board game as well. I'll uh, I'll mention uh, Everdell. Uh, if you've ever uh, been able to play Everdell, it's a really uh, lovely uh, board game. Uh, where you're just a bunch of like little uh, forest animals running around uh, trying to crack like berries and so forth. But it, it's a it's a nicely themed game. It has a lot of elements of deck building, engine building, moving of resources, uh, trying to you know basically get uh, as many points as possible before the other uh, friends animals uh, can uh, out outdo you. But a uh, really, really delightful, fun game. It's, it plays one to four players, but it's got a lot of nice uh, sophistication in it uh, that makes for uh, a lot of replayability. So I guess I guess those would be my uh, uh, two picks. 
Thanks, yeah, Jeremy Evans. What a legend! He uh, he just keeps he just keeps improving the Ruby community. Seriously, stuff so fast it's untrue. Yeah. I can like do things with his libraries that put other stuff to shame. Uh, naming their names, yeah. he gave a really great talk to I think it was the um, Pakistan Ruby group. I don't know if you've seen that recently, where much I like yeah. Martin Luther nailing his thirty nine theses yeah. to the door of a Catholic cathedral. And you've got you've got to watch it for a bit. It gets into it. Jeremy Evans nails his uh, alternative Ruby stack to the to the door to the door of the Ruby community, where he just goes through all the parts of Rails that you can replace with alternatives. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if if it's going to catch on massively. But I'm a much much better developer. Um, coming back to a rail stack for going through those technologies. So even if you are on rails, you're going to learn a lot from polish roof programming and all of Jeremy Evans' work. My yeah. pick this week is a Harry Potter movie that's coming out tomorrow in the UK. I haven't had a Harry Potter movie for a long time. It's a very British thing. And when the Harry Potter movies come out, we pick them. Uh, it's The Secrets of Dumbledore, and it ties in with the whole elderly yeah. thing. So I'm going to pick that. And my other pick, which I I know you're too too uh, too hu- too modest to pick, is the talk we've already alluded to, which is your talk I think last year at Boulder Ruby on pattern matching, uh, which is a really great talk. Uh, really enjoyed that. It's tough going. If you want to work out, that's a really <laughs> workout for you, but well worth the investment. Brooke, if people want to contact you online, if they want to know more about what you're doing, where should they go? Yeah, basically, you can find me in just one place. Uh, it's just uh, alchemist.io, uh, alchemist plural, but io. And um, yeah, feel free to hang out. I've got a community there. Um, I've got my you know articles, blogs, you can subscribe. I basically just try to keep playing it forward, right? Just keep giving free information out for people that really want to digest it. So yeah, that's that's kind of where I live. <laughs> Yeah, and I know you do loads of really important kind of infrastructure. You do the Alpine Ruby Docker image, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, this is this I is do, this do. is stuff yeah. like we use every day where I am, and you never know who's doing it. But now you know who's doing it. Uh, so thank you very much for maintaining that. Um, I'm sure a lot of people really appreciate it. Well, actually, so Luke, just to be fair, I'm, I'm actually not a maintainer on there. I just build it so that I can have Alpine Ruby for my uh, Ruby builds. Uh, uh, so basically, I use the Alpine builds to have a Docker image so I can put it into CI. I just I just want to be able to... So the reason I did this... So, sorry, not for uh, another diatribe. Now I'm confused. Um, every year... Are you, are, oh yeah. So have you stolen this from someone else? What? Are, what? What is this? What is? What's going on? No, no, <laughs> no, no. So the thing that came up is every year when you know Christmas comes around, right? I, I want to grab Ruby as immediately when it comes out. The new I'm Ruby, eager to play right? With it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm always frustrated that like the CI services are so far behind. Like you know you have to wait for them to come back from the holiday. And so I wanted to be able to just grab the new version of Ruby, build it myself within my own Alpine Docker image, and then uh, produce it really quickly so I could actually get all of my open source projects to be running on the latest Ruby. So uh, that's why I maintain it as a developer tool so that others can just get Ruby as fast as possible. <laughs> it is great. I wish the uh, Ubuntu Ruby developers would do that as well. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe I should yep. start doing that. But I just feel like the quality of Ruby might go down if people start using the one I compiled. The thank you very much. It's an amazing episode. Uh, I've certainly learned a lot. 
And I love Strux even more than I do now. So until awesome. next time, from myself, Valentino, and Brooke, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thanks. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.